The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Happy Halloween. Happy Suen and pre-Feliz Dia de los Muertos. Later in the show, we'll talk with Johan Rashi Vega and Jason Montgomery about their three community ofrendas set up in the 413 for you to learn about and to participate in Dia de los Muertos. But first... Jeff Belanger is one of the most visible and prolific researchers of folklore and legends today. He's the co-creator of the Emmy-nominated, award-winning New England Legends television series and is the author of over a dozen books, including the bestsellers The World's Most Haunted Places, Weird Massachusetts, and Who's Haunting the White House? It's Joe Biden! Stop it. Uh, he also hosts the New England Legends weekly podcast, which has garnered over four and a half million downloads since it was launched. His latest book, The Fright Before Christmas, is out this month. In 2009, after meeting our director here at the Fabulous 413, Tony Dunn, when he produced the national PBS documentary about spooky New England stories, Jeff and Tony discovered they had both been born in the same small Central Mass Hospital a few months apart. Coincidence or supernatural intervention? Ooh, Tony and Jeff both share a love of folklore and the mysterious. And in 2013, Jeff Belanger and Tony, our director, created the New England Legends TV show, which airs on select PBS stations, including NEPM, and streams on Amazon Prime. Jeff is also a writer for Ghost Adventures for the last 15 years, the number one show on the Travel Channel. Welcome to the spooky show this Halloween, Jeff Belanger. Happy Halloween, Monty and Khalees. <laughs> We'd love to have you, and I've loved speaking to you over the years about all the spooky things that surround us here in New England. Because there's so many of them. Yeah, and you've chronicled so many of them. What first drew you to the spooky, weird, and wonderful side of storytelling? Growing up where I did, I was born in Massachusetts, same hospital as Tony, as you mentioned, but I grew up in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. And that's a historic town, a lot like so many in Massachusetts, uh, so many all over New England. And I had friends from a young age who said their houses were haunted. And I was so intrigued that it was not like a Hollywood ghost story. And Sandy Hook is the town next to Monroe, Connecticut, which is where Ed and Lorraine Warren lived. So if you've seen any of the Conjuring movies, uh, that based on their work, I knew those guys since I was 13 years old oh, and wow. I grew up around them. And so I, I, I maybe was sort of destined. I was just infatuated. And also I was raised Roman Catholic, which I feel like I have to disclose. I don't know yeah. why, but, you know, in Catholicism, we've got God and the devil and angels and demons and sinners and saints and purgatory. And my faith, I've always been sort of chasing this this tangible evidence. And some people are lucky they get it in church. And for some reason, I found it in haunted buildings and cemeteries at midnight. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb also having been raised Catholic that like Catholicism firmly believes in ghosts. Saints are ghosts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what's purgatory, right? Purgatory, like you, you wait to get upgraded, right? I mean, you're stuck somewhere. I think it, it sort of fits into the narrative. And, and one of the things I really loved is that ghosts are like the least common denominator of spirituality because religion divides us. When I, If I said, hey, let me tell you about my religion today, everyone squirms and goes, no, 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 no. And then we fight. But if I say, hey, let's talk about ghosts. Uh, if you want to take it as just a story, the story still has value. And if you want to take it as something more, because maybe you've had your own experience, then great. We can talk about the elephant in the room, life after death. And and it's it's big questions. I mean, these are the biggest questions humans have ever asked. And if, if you want to know the answers, maybe some people can find it in a church or a mosque or a synagogue. Others of us find it, you know, creeping around haunted buildings where people have been have died and been murdered and 
they say it's haunted. Yeah, and if you, as a Roman Catholic, lead not with ghosts, but like Jesus is a zombie, that just it's a deal breaker right there. <laughs> Jesus is a revenant. He maintains his his mental state. He's a revenant, not a zombie. Thanks for the clarification, Khalees. Uh, we're wow. speaking with Jeff Belanger, who is one of the most acclaimed storytellers of folklore, especially around New England. And we, on this show, focus on the fabulous 413. Let's start with one that's right near where I live uh, in Turner's right over the bridge in Greenfield, and it is a bridge, the Eunice Williams Bridge. Tell us the ghost story behind the Eunice Williams Bridge. So the Eunice Williams Bridge uh, there in Greenfield is historic, as you said, but it's also known as the Screaming Bridge uh, because it was there March 1st, 1704, uh, during a, a horrible conflict with Native Americans that Eunice Williams, along with a lot of other people from the region, were being marched uh, up to Canada as prisoners of war. And those who couldn't keep up, keep in mind, March 1st is still very much winter, especially in, in that part of Massachusetts. Those who were struggling to keep up were executed. And Eunice Williams couldn't make it. And she was tomahawked. And her screams echoed throughout. And it literally haunted the people who were forced to march with her. Tragic event. But eventually, this covered bridge is built. And she becomes sort of synonymous with it because it's right in the area where it happened. And to this day, they say, as you're in and around that bridge, you can still hear those screams. And of course, the bridge itself is a throwback. I mean, you look yeah. at it and it's right mm -hmm. out of an old New England postcard. And then it just and when you know the history, when you combine those two things, you can't help but sort of connect to what that must have been like to have to walk across that river in the ice cold and witness this brutal violence. Not that we need more tourism, tchotchke sort of things, but I think if we had more like watercolors of covered bridges with the ghosts involved, oh yeah, I think we'd sell a lot of those. <laughs> we can paint them on. Like we'll go to a postcard shop and just paint them in. Yeah, yeah, add them on for sure. <laughs> They'll I mean, totally phone appreciate apps that. Do that for you. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because like ghost tourism is a huge thing. Towns all over offer ghost tours and so on. I don't think one bridge in Greenfield is maybe quite enough to sustain a, a business. But at the same time, if you go to almost any major city in the U.S. and all over Europe, there's a ghost tour somewhere tonight that will take you around town and tell you about the various haunted buildings and the haunted ghost lore. Have you you've been to the Eunice Williams Bridge, Jeff? Oh, sure. Have yep. you yourself ever heard the scream? I have not, but I've seen the monument. I've seen the bridge. And for me, I mean, I can't lose. I'm not psychic or sensitive. I don't know the future. I can't talk to your dead grandma. But at the same time, when I stand in a place where history was made and where history left a mark, I tune into it. And, and I think that's an incredible experience. And I think it's something we should go through because that's part of our history. That's part of what made us who we are. That's part of what defines who we are. Because each and every one of us is a byproduct of not just who raised us, but where we grew up and everything that happened on that land going back thousands and thousands of years. And when you understand it better, when you connect to it, I think you understand yourself a little better. And if a ghost story helps you connect, all the better. I heard a quote from you in New England Legends saying, what is a ghost but history waiting to be remembered? So whether you want to be a believer in it or just know that the ghosts of history echo now here today, I think it's a wonderful way to, to tell stories about the past and also around this time of year to get a little chill, well, yeah, chill of up your spine as well. right? <laughs> <laughs> when Tony mentioned we were going to talk to you and what we were going to cover, supernatural, paranormal-y things in, in Western Mass, I specifically made him make sure that he was going to include cryptids in this. Mm. And so please tell us about the Cobble Mountain Critter. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, <laughs> and if for people aren't familiar with the term cryptid, what is a cryptid? So a cryptid is a is an unknown animal. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist, but so far unknown, but rumored to exist. Uh, a classic example would be, of course, Bigfoot or Champy the lake monster of Lake Champlain, although there's many other lake monsters, right? So, so animals that many people have reported seeing, however, uh, we can't prove to you that they necessarily exist. And so the Cobble Mountain Critter, by all descriptions, is a Bigfoot critter. And he's been seen uh, around the rev uh, reservoir, the Cobble Mountain Reservoir in Blandford, Mass. And he's become known locally as the Cobble Mountain Critter. Although Critter makes it sound cute and cuddly, he's actually allegedly, you know, eight feet tall and covered in hair. And one of many Bigfoot sightings seen throughout the Berkshires. Out in October Mountain, there have been Bigfoot sightings documented in the newspapers going back to at least the 1980s. There were there were two in the 1980s. So this creature, you know, is, is reported all over the world, but Massachusetts has its own versions locally, you know, at Cobble Mountain and in uh, October Mountain. October Mountain is also interesting because there there are multiple supernatural occurrences that surround October Mountain and uh, Herman Melville factors <laughs> into the story of October Mountain. Tell us about October Mountain in Lee. Yeah, October Mountain is beautiful and called October Mountain because of how gorgeous it is in that month. And as you mentioned, Herman Melville named the mountain in one of his short stories. And because he's a Massachusetts treasure, it's stuck. He was going to uh, call it Mountain Dick, but that just no, didn't oh, seem, God. seem to stick. So he went with <laughs> October Mountain We're instead. all happy he didn't go with Mountain Dick. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned Mountain Dick because Moby Dick was named specifically uh, for Mount Greylock. He would look out of his window and he would see this this snow-covered mountain, Mount Greylock, and the trees waving underneath. And he said, wow, it looks like the back of like a white sperm whale. And so you're not far <laughs> off from the truth. Varshi blows a hump like a snow hill. Yeah. <laughs> that is the one line I remember from Moby Dick. A hump like yeah. a snow hill, it is Moby Dick. So there you go, Mount Greylock. That's that's a, not supernatural, but still a cool bit of totally three cool. history. But tell us about the, uh, the ghostly girl of October Mountain and some of the UFO things that have been yeah. surrounding that area. The very first time I went there was probably about 2006. And I had heard about a abandoned cemetery somewhere near the top, and it was haunted by the ghost of a little girl. Now, that's 45,000 square acres. It's the largest state forest in Massachusetts. I didn't have a lot to go on, but we did find stellar holes. We found that there were old foundations and things. So we knew people lived there. And I'd later learned that it was a logging community and people live there. They work there. They died there. It made sense they would need a cemetery. But we went back years later with um, with Tony, with the, with the PBS crew, and we found someone who knew where the cemetery was and we would have never found it unless someone could guide us yeah and it's small i mean it's i don't know maybe an eighth an eighth of an acre uh we walk back through the woods and through this trail and there's about 25 headstones all knocked over weathered no one's there to take care of them and as we were walking up one side we found the grave of a girl named anna pease who died at the age of 10 and i remember thinking wow this is so profound right that there's a, a story of a girl and then we can put a name to it, Anna Pease. And I thought that was the end of the story. The, the episode aired on PBS. And a year later, Tony gets a phone call from someone in Palmer whose name is Nelson Pease. And he runs a, a music store in Palmer. And he said, that would be a descendant of mine. Like, you know, we're related in some way. And his whole family was in from Minnesota. It was a few days before Thanksgiving. And he said, can you tell us how to get there? We really want to see it. And so we said, we'll do better. We'll take you up there. And so we, we brought them up there with our cameras. They carried in an antique pump organ Whoa. and they set it up in right next to her grave. And they played uh, We Shall Come No More, Gentle Annie. 
and a song by Stephen Foster, and they all laid a rose on Annie's grave. And I'm actually getting a little choked up right now remembering it. It was incredible because I was thinking about how when's the last time a peas visited that grave? Mm. I'm, I'm, it could be a hundred years or more yeah. since. Uh, and suddenly, a few days before Thanksgiving, like that was the warmest place in New England. And telling a ghost story, whether you believe in ghosts or not, uh, reunited a family and gave a girl a name again and identified a community that helped build the 413. Also, you add pump organ to that scenario and you've got some super spooky chills <laughs> yeah, going. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it was amazing. This The, the wife played the pump organ. It was this small thing. They carried it in and and, and this, this song just echoed in the woods. No one around us for miles and miles. Wow. It was amazing. The only thing that would have been scarier is musical saw. It's just a creepy <laughs> right. sounding instrument. It's also a weapon. Pump organs are so, so creepy. But coming up, the haunting of the Hoosick Tunnel and the unprecedented witch trial in Hadley that inspired the Handmaid's Tale. Not trail, tale. And later in the show, we'll learn about three community ofrendas for Dia de los Muertos. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're speaking with Jeff Belanger, who is a writer, researcher, a folklorist, a storyteller, Emmy-nominated behind New England Legends. He focuses specifically on a lot of his work on ghost stories from our area here in the 413. Uh, we've been in the Berkshires for a long time. Let's stay in the Berkshires with the, another ghost story. Yeah, the Hoosick Tunnel, the most haunted place in perhaps New England in Florida? Florida! In Florida. Ooh, it's spooky Ooh. that New- that Massachusetts has a Florida to begin with. <laughs> yeah. The Hoosick Tunnel is the original big dig. It started in 1851 and took uh, over 20 years. It was grossly over budget. 195 people died during the construction. And the reason is the, the, the stone was so loose. It's not good rock, right? But this was the best option to put a train tunnel to get it to connect northern Massachusetts over to New York. And this was the best best option they had. Four and three quarters mile long. I mean, that was an absolutely huge tunnel. Biggest in the United States at the time mm. um, and one of the largest in the world. And so as they're, as they're digging through, the rock is so porous, it's crumbling. There's cave-ins. People are dying. But in Florida, which is where the vent is, there's this shaft on top of the mountain that, that gets the exhaust uh, out to suck all the, the you know smoke fumes from the trains out of the mountain. That's where the, the site of the bloody pit. There was a, a horrible accident. Uh, I think over a dozen men died in that one incident alone. There's a monument right across the street to them. And the place is just haunted and haunting. And people will report seeing a man holding a lantern walking into the tunnel and then he disappears. And that sort of lines up with something that happened historically. We know a local man uh, cut through the tunnel and was never seen again. Now, whether he was hit by a train or killed by a bear or something else, we don't ever know. But people do still report that ghost. And I'll tell you, it's a scary place when you stand by that tunnel and it is just completely dark inside. And it is just, you know, it goes further than you can see. And it's still an active train tunnel, by the way. Trains, freighters still go through there. So please, oh, please, if you happen to visit, be aware that a train could be coming along. It's it's an ominous place. And when you know that almost 200 people died during its construction, the gravity of it is even greater. It's illegal to walk through that tunnel, as tempting as Absolutely. it might be. But yeah. they, the, I know that Amtrak and others have done, you know, many kind of like ghost tours of the tunnel. Have you ever experienced that? 
I have not. Amtrak used to run one time a year. They would run a, a special train that went through the Hoosick Tunnel in addition to some other sightseeing stuff. And I do know a filmmaker that went through and got to film, you know, the tunnel going through. And that was pretty cool. I never had the opportunity to take that train because it always runs in the fall when the leaves are so pretty. And when it's the fall, I'm busy. I'm gone every <laughs> night doing ghost stuff. And I can never go anywhere. When someone's like, hey, you want to come to my Halloween party? I can't. I can't. I'm working. It's like, who's going to harvest all these ghosts? if it's not me yeah i know this is my this is my my christmas this is my time to work <laughs> although you do have a christmas oriented book that comes out this month the fright before christmas which maybe we'll have you on again near christmas to talk about some spooky christmas stories but the only if you're ready to like really take this le- this holiday to a new level i'm here to warn you that halloween is merely the warm-up act Ooh. i mean sure ghosts scare some people but christmas could kill you there are monsters lurking that will kill you we're speaking yeah. with jeff belanger from the television show new england legends he's also got a podcast that talks about the super Supernatural and the folklore, and specifically focuses on uh, New England and lots of the storytelling. He's also a writer for Ghost Adventures for the Travel Channel. One more ghost story, Jeff Belanger. Half-Hanged Mary of Hadley. Tell us the story of Half-Hanged Mary. Yeah, so Half-Hanged Mary of Hadley. This is a profound story because I don't know if you've ever watched the show The Handmaid's Tale or read the book. I've read the books. The books are based on Half-Hanged Mary. Wow, I did this, not know that. This was the the impetus for the whole story. So Half-Hanged Mary, was uh, she was accused of being a witch back in 1683, but she was found innocent. And though she was found innocent, the court's verdict wasn't good enough for the people. And so when a prominent church deacon took ill uh, and, he, and he was incoherent and making all kinds of strange sounds, they blamed Mary. And the thing about Mary is that she was an outsider. And pretty much anyone ever accused of being a witch throughout New England history was an outsider. You were you were weak socially or financially or otherwise. Prominent people were never accused of being witches. It was always like the outsiders. And so that was Mary. And so it got to the point where though she she was sent to Boston, she was jailed, she was tried again and again, tested, still came out innocent. Locals basically lynched her and then buried her in the snow. And the crazy thing is she wasn't dead. She, oh. she she survived it. She got up and she lived for years later. And that's why they called her Half-Hanged Mary, because after the lynching, she actually survived it, which only made her reputation worse. People thought, well, you she must be a witch if she survived <laughs> that. But the story was just it's just so tragic. Like, this is how you can treat people on the outside of society. This is how we can treat women who had no means otherwise to uh, to defend themselves. And that story was enough to inspire the book, The Handmaid's Tale, which then turned into a very successful TV series. That's the lesson of witch trials, whether it's Salem or any other. I mean, we, we still do witch trials. We still have them all the time. And Salem and Mary Webster is an example of what can happen when it goes way too far. It can literally turn lethal. And you look at some of the stuff that gets slung around the media today with between politics. And I don't just mean national politics. I mean, your PTA meetings and your, your church groups and so on. As soon as you say you're a witch or, you know, today the, the en vogue word is, you're evil. If I if you call me evil, what can I possibly say other than no, I'm not? Well, that's what someone who was evil would say. And yeah. here we are in 1692 once again, and I can't defend myself other than to say I'm not the thing you're accusing me of being. And we fight and it gets worse and worse and worse. And once you think of another human being as something less than yourself, there is no limit to how poorly you can treat them. And that's true throughout history. And if you call someone a witch or call someone evil, what can you do with a witch or evil but kill them? 
And that's where we're at. And so stories like this matter. They're important to tell and retell because we're living it day by day. Uh, and we're not too far off from where we were. And maybe just maybe if Mary haunts us enough, we'll tone it down a little and not end up there again. I think it's fascinating. We hear about witch trials in New England quite a bit, and everybody thinks about Salem, but I don't think a lot of people know about this uh, witch trial in Hadley, Massachusetts, right down they the street. They were everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, Connecticut yeah. had witch trials before mm-hmm. Salem. I mean, they they were all over New England. And often it was a, a widow, and widows weren't allowed to own land. So if they had no sons or anything, they couldn't own land. They're off on their own. And then they become wards of the town. It's a pain in the butt to take care of them. And they quickly figured out If I have a reputation as a witch, well, if I threaten you with a hex or a spell and you bring me more firewood, well, then I get what I need. I literally have to do what I need to do to get what I need. You know, the the reputation just grows on itself to the point where everybody hates this poor woman, but she's a victim of the circumstance of not being allowed to own land, being an outsider, being on her own. That's where we've been. I mean, there's there's a lesson. And it is fascinating that Margaret Atwood did take that tale and turn it into The Handmaid's Tale, which is a, a contemporary cautionary tale. <laughs> yes, yeah, she had said she wanted to write a historical novel, but realized it was just too hard. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but she's like, so I just said it in modern time. Obviously, that story was was wildly successful and it resonates. Sadly. So we've covered the 413, but... What is your favorite ghostly paranormal tale you've encountered, either in the 413 or in the greater New England area? Because you cover a lot of ground. Oh, my gosh. That's so hard to answer. Like, So uh, the podcast has been every week for literally 322 weeks, if you're keeping score. <laughs> and like, that's a story every week. So every sixth episode is Massachusetts. Every sixth episode is Connecticut, right? So we go around the states. And then at this point, I love the obscure stuff. In Foster, Rhode Island, there's uh, the Ramtail Factory. And there's these ruins. You can still go see the foundation, the old foundation. And it's called Rhode Island's official haunt because in a a census book from like the 1880s, they have descriptions of all the various properties. Like one sentence, like Farmer Miller has four cows, 22 chickens, so many acres. And then the next line is Ramtail Factory, Foster, Rhode Island, haunted. And it's like, that's all it says. And you're like, whoa, talk about burying the lead, right? So, so you look into it and, and this was a, it was a factory. It was uh, it was a woolen factory and they had a bell that would, you know, r- bring people to work. And there was a dispute among some of the owners. One of them got into financial trouble. And one night he went in there and he took his own life and never rang the bell to call people to work. And they finally discovered him. And the building had a haunted reputation ever since. And to this day, they say you can go out in the woods and still hear the bell, even though the whole building and everything is long gone, just this stone foundation of where it once stood. And it's still known as Rhode Island's official haunt. So you have a podcast and you've written things. Do you feel that there's a difference between the way that you tell your stories auditorily and the way that you write out these legends? Oh, yeah. They're two different muscles, right? Yeah, completely different. So so the, my podcast is scripted. I write the scripts every week. And so we have sound effects, voice actors. If we screw up, we go back and edit. And and the whole point is we, we time travel. So my question is, how did we get to right now? Why are we talking about that building being haunted? Why are we talking about a Bigfoot creature in these woods? And so you go back in time and we hear from my witnesses. If there's old newspaper accounts, I have voice actors read those quotes. And then we, we sort of piece it together like we're witnessing it as it happened and then come back to, to normal. That muscle uh, has been worked for 15 years, working on the New England Legends TV series, working on ghost adventures every week and writing for a visual medium. So for me, the podcast is an auditory documentary. When you write a book, you've got to pace right. You've got to like, you know, engage, pull in and be able to do a marathon. 
you know, to get all the way to the end. So they're two entirely different muscles. And then when I'm telling live stories, that's just another thing entirely. Like, like when you're in front of an audience, like last night in North Adams, I'm a performer. I am performing. And, and I, I, I feel the stories, you know, come up literally from the earth through my feet. And, and I tell them and I think I feel like I'm almost like a minister of the past. And these are sermons that, that need to be told. They, they sink in and they hit where they hit. It's like three entirely different uh, skill sets. Jeff Belanger, you have a career based in telling these supernatural spooky stories. Before we let you go this Halloween, what is the spookiest thing that you personally have ever experienced? So I'm going to go back to my first experience, and it was back in 2003, and it was in the city of Paris, France. At that point, I had never seen what I would say is a ghost. I had interviewed hundreds of people about their experiences. I didn't think they were lying to me, but I hadn't had my own firsthand experience until I was alone 30 meters below the city in the catacombs of Paris, surrounded by millions of human skeletons all around me in, in just this incredible place. And as I was walking down this long hallway, just uh, if I put my hands out in both directions, my fingertips would be touching skulls on both sides. I saw this shadow the size of a man move from one side to the other and back again. And I froze because I said, OK, wait a minute. My first instinct is this is a real person. Uh, and how did he get down here? Maybe there's a side tunnel or something. But then I kept walking and realized, no, it's just straight all the way to the end. And if that's not a ghost, I don't have another word for what it could have been. And it's I know this doesn't sound this isn't they're not going to make this into a Hollywood movie. However, it was life changing because in that moment I thought this must be what everybody's talking about. And it it changed me. It made me a, a true believer. I went back a couple of years later. I was in Paris again. I went right back to the same tunnel. I'm like, OK, I'm back. Come on out. Right. <laughs> Nothing happened. Nothing mm. happened. And I'm planning to go back again next May. So I'll, I'll keep you posted if the third time's a charm. Yeah. But, a healthy dose of skepticism with all of the wonderful, spooky, supernatural stuff that you cover. Jeff Belanger, the co-creator of the Emmy-nominated, award-winning New England Legends television show, as well as the New England Legends weekly podcast. We're definitely going to have you back closer to Christmas to talk more about The Fright Before Christmas, your new book. That Ooh, there's the book. He just held it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's out this month. You can get a jump on it or get it ready for uh, for your holiday gift giving, which we are way too early to talk about. I know that the Mariah Carey song is going to start on the radio tomorrow everywhere. We'll all I feel just like have to deal with it. It doesn't need to be Whamageddon. That's the song that you need to try and avoid. The Mariah Carey one? Yeah. I love that, though. Anyway, Jeff Belanger, thank you so much for joining us this Halloween. Thank you. Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> As Halloween ends, Dia de los Muertos begins, although it kind of started three days ago. Up next, Holyoke's Johan Rashi Vega and Jason Montgomery on three opportunities for you to learn about and participate in the Day of the Dead. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. It's Halloween today. But tomorrow and the next day are commemorations of Dia de los Muertos, and we're going to learn a little bit more about that. We heard some about it from Latinas 413 on Monday's show, but we are going to hear about the ofrenda that is at the indeterminately haunted Wisteria Hearst Museum, which we took a tour of on Monday's show as well, from two of the folks who are putting this ofrenda up at Wisteria Hearst Museum from Attack Bear Press, the 
erstwhile poet laureate of East Hampton, or are you still the poet laureate technically? No, no, I am the former poet laureate of East Hampton. Now living in Holyoke, yes. and I will say we re-aired your conversation on Indigenous Peoples Day about the poetry that you could get text and get a poem, and people were really excited about it again. Okay, Did you get I, text I was wondering about that because suddenly <laughs> my phone just blew up, with, and I was sitting there on my couch going like, what is happening right now? We should right have warned now? you, I realized <laughs> after the fact, but we got so many emails about like, what was that guy's number again? But, well, I was glad to do it. <laughs> an excellent poet and Chicano American, uh, indigenous yes. American, if you want to use the word American at all, as well as our former colleague here, Johan Orashi Vega, who we're so glad to see back in the hallways of NEPM, uh, who works with Holyoke Media, which is in a brand new... Doing just general piles of amazing stuff. It's kind of astounding. And in what look like glorious new studios... Johan, you're all originally from Mexico. That's correct. Yes. I'm born and raised in Mexico City. Nice. And so now both of you making your home in Holyoke and bringing an ofrenda to the Wisteria Hearst Museum. This is a, not the first year. This is the, the seventh time that this has happened? Uh, sixth time. Sixth, sixth time. time. Tell us where this idea came from to team up with Wisteria Hearst. Wisteria Hearst is actually one of three sites this year. We have the uh, publicly available ofrenda at Laurel Park, uh, which is actually being constructed today. Due to the weather, we had to hold off on constructing it. Then we have another one uh, at Eastworks at uh, 50 Arrow Gallery that is available from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. every day. And then the Wisteria Hearse. Where this came from? Well, Johan was the first ever person to to build one at Wisteria Hearse. So I am, like many things I do, just copying Johan. (laughs) (laughs) It was a combination of different things happening because we need to acknowledge the work and effort that dancer and Mexican performer Michelle Marroquin was doing in East Hampton mm-hmm. with a representation of Day of the Death through her art being, being a dancer. That led up to a conversation that actually, that's the way I met Jason. Yeah. And we had some uh, discrepancies about the perception of it and some practices that some people felt entitled to do that were not correct, attending this event basically in costume, but basically practicing cultural appropriation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had that conversation among ourselves to try to see to which point that is correct to allow or not, and, and, and also understanding that Jason as Chicano, me as a Mexican, uh, born and raised, but from the city. And then additionally, the perspective of Neftali Duran, mm-hmm. who is Mexican, but with roots in indigenous communities. We needed to talk and learn about our own experiences from each other so we could grow up on this. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was fantastic because then we felt this need. We felt compelled to continue doing this this celebration, this tradition, as a way of honoring our, our ancestors, but at the same time to educate and welcome the community who want to learn more about it and to enjoy and celebrate with us. It was in Wisteria Hearst after that conversation when it happened almost as a serendipitous activity. And it was also thanks to Michelle Marroquin's effort. She brought out uh, a lot of elements to construct that ofrenda. And I think that first year that uh, we we all got together, you, me, and Neff, 
it was such an enlightening moment for me personally because to see those three very very different perspectives on on what an ofrenda is, what Dia de Muertos is, what this celebration means to a variety of people, really made it clear that, well, we need to, if we're going to continue to share this tradition, we need to have this educational component. Because for me, coming from a Chicano perspective um, and a very West Coast Chicano perspective, very L.A. County, which we can get as granular as that, <laughs> um, you know, it was very different. It was it was very much a political action, um, you know, and to some degree, even a cultural appropriation um, during the Chicano rights movement of old Mexican traditions, you know, because there was this kind of divide between being a Chicano and being an American. And, you know, when you're in this kind of um, identity vacuum, you, you say, well, who am I? What am I? How are we going to express ourselves? And there was this, this look to Mexico. And so in that way, it could be said this was a, a practice that was appropriated from indigenous Mexican communities. And so even just our celebration of that complicated this conversation so much that it was like, okay, let's keep this going so that we can continue the conversation. What was your take on it, Johan Rashivig? We heard a little bit about the Chicano perspective. You're from Mexico City originally. Everybody, Neftali, who we also mentioned, all live in Holyoke now and are bringing these three ofrendas. What was your relationship to Dia de los Muertos in Mexico? And what have you brought to this conversation or taken from, say, the Chicano perspective or the Oaxacan perspective that Neftali brings to it? Well, for me, it was until I met Jason that I learned and was made aware of the meaning of Dia de los Muertos for the Chicano community. I really was oblivious of it. I'm glad and grateful that I got that opportunity because when you are in a city that big and that complicated as Mexico City, you are, in a way, in, inside a bubble. Sometimes it keeps you away from the reality of what happens outside of the bubble and with our own people. Mm-hmm. So it was fantastic for me to keep learning from it. Seeing how this is the representation of Mexican culture and tradition and identity is complicated itself because it's a combination of colonial practices and the reminiscence of pre-Hispanic traditions that were way more brutal (laughs) and not subtle. (laughs) And yes, to the point that historically that is why colonizers, the Spaniards, once the New New Spain, which is now Mexico City, was uh, under control of Spain, they made sure that they eradicated all this information, all this tradition. They burned all all the cults and everything that was connected to that so it could be completely forgotten. Fortunately, there was someone, uh, Sagun, who made a lot of uh, scripts and notes that are our most reliable source of information of how practices uh, by the Mexicas, the, the people who were uh, before what is Mexico City today, were practicing to honor Day of the Dead, which actually was two months long. Mm-hmm. And death, it is part of the important meanings and celebration of life. So we have deities, we have a strong connection with death, which is not feared. It is embraced. It is loved. It is part of life. It is part of everything we do every day. So that is why I see that sometimes people from other places and other cultures see us in a weird way, kind of like, how can you be so glad for death? Well, because it's part of life. And it's a way that instead of just mourning, we have this 
beautiful way of celebrating and having basically a homecoming, a family gathering during these two days where we share and we do the same things we will do in real life, in actual physical life with all of our families when we gather. So yes, it's a celebration, it's a party that still at the same time has this deep meaning of respect And we wanted, by making this ofrendas, to make sure that people here in our community in, in Western Massachusetts can see the beauty of it, its meaning, so it can be also appreciated and respected and not seen as a novelty or something they can use as a costume for Halloween. Yeah. And at the same time, we are inviting people to be part of it because it doesn't matter where are your backgrounds, where are your roots. We all are mourning missing and wanting to celebrate someone we lost. So this is a perfect opportunity for us to bring the whole community to be part of this. It's always interesting to me that people forget that, especially like non-Eurocentric and non-Abrahamic triad cultures, almost all of them have death celebrations that are celebrations. Yeah. Like there's Oban in Japan. There's several ancestors, like celebrations in, in China and ancestor celebrations in Western Africa. Like this is not, like it's always astounding how isolated and isolating Eurocentric history tends to make everything else. And it, it's not like they didn't do that with intention. Yeah. But again, it's always interesting to encounter like, this is not new. This is very much a practice of the global majority. And this idea of, of how we encounter death is not unique. And part of having this ongoing tradition in Holyoke and seeing how not unique it is even amongst Latino people, that was what surprised me the most and showed my kind of cultural isolation was the first year that we did this, talking to people from the Dominican Republic, talking to people from Venezuela and talking to people from uh, Puerto Rico, how they had a very similar event or they had a very similar ritual or there, there was a very similar um, celebration. And just kind of being blown away by this idea of like, wow, we really are isolated when it comes to understanding how this is such a unifying view of, of death. So how can a non-Latinx person appropriately participate in Dia de los Muertos? Coming up, more with Holyoke's Johan Rashi Vega and Jason Montgomery, who are behind three public ofrendas in Holyoke and in East Hampton. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're speaking with Jason Montgomery, poet from Attack Bear Press, as well as Johan Rashi Vega from Holyoke Media, who've teamed up to put three community ofrendas, uh, two in Holyoke and one in East Hampton. You mentioned that there were people that were inter interacting, non-Latinx people uh, interacting in ways that were not correct, were culturally mm -hmm. inappropriate. For the non-Latinx community, how would you hope that they would interact with these community ofrendas? What are some of the things that you've seen in years past and you're hoping to see this year? You know, what surprises me is how respectful and how amazingly appropriate people have been around these. Um, the first, uh, not the first year, I think it was the 
third year. <laughs> yeah, wow, we have been doing this a long time. Uh, the, the third year, we were going to host the ofrenda behind the Baustein building in downtown Holyoke. And I remember telling someone from East Hampton like that we would be doing this and the look of like shock on their face. Like you're going to leave this out in the community and just, and I was, and I was so taken aback because I'm like, that is such a weird way to look at this thing happening. And of course, any fear that this individual had was completely inappropriate. But what also surprised me was how much respect there was that came from communities outside of of that. Um, There was actually this conversation I was having with a, a young woman and I was telling her about how we had received photos because we take submissions of photos. Um, if you have uh, a photo that you'd like on the ofrenda and you're unable to bring it yourself, you can go to Attack Bear Press and you can find a, a submissions page. And I was telling her we had received this this photo. It was of a young child that was stillborn and, you know, but I it kind of explained that this was shouldn't be seen as grotesque or bubble and she just burst into tears. It was a young white woman. And she's like, that's my daughter. And I was like, oh my God, it's so wonderful to meet you. I didn't know whose child this was. So I placed her with with my family, their their photos, because I was like, oh, they'll, they'll look after a baby. Mm. Um, <laughs> and we just had this very touching moment where it was like, this is what this is for. It doesn't matter if that this young woman is white. It doesn't matter that I'm not. It doesn't matter in this moment. This is at the root of what this practice is for. It gave all of us a moment where we could join together, not just not just for this woman, but also for me, because it was a moment where I'm like, if, if there was a random baby hanging around, I know my family would be like, okay, you're ours now. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they get them back with pierced ears and in a pink dress. But um, for me, I see these practices already coming to fruition where we see people who are approaching this after all of these years in a very respectful manner. Yes, it was, uh, particularly with the one of last year, it was really great to see how people from different backgrounds and cultures were really interested about it and they were asking questions. The moment they were seeing its whole meaning, you could tell that they were really moved by it. And even they asked if it was possible for them to join or how could they honor. And we invited them to bring their pictures, their own pictures of their relatives and people that they that they miss. And they did. We were so happy to be together putting those pictures in the, in the ofrenda and sharing that moment, knowing that when we are doing this and we are all coming together, knowing and understanding its meaning, that's the whole point. And when when you understand that, yes, mainstream practices have been the reason for people to get to notice and maybe being fascinated by it, don't follow the trend because someone feel that they can put a, a label, a tag price, and make a sugar skull, a product that you can wear for fun. Actually, you can, and you should, because that's also part of the celebration, especially for the children. But still remember, we are honoring the dead. So there is a layer of respect that needs to be present all the time, and not because I want to be cool or I want to be posting selfies to show how culturally diverse I am, even if I don't understand where I am standing on. <laughs> that is the type of things that we hope we can eradicate from, from the people uh, attending these events and instead make them feel welcome to mm-hmm. the celebrations, because we are not gatekeeping anything. We want everybody to be f- to feel happy that we have this type of celebrations and these moments to be connected, to be vulnerable, 
to share and to grow as a community. We've been talking about the ofrendas and people coming to them and participating in them, but what does it actually take to put up your ofrendas? And like everybody's is a little bit different. Um, a incredible amount of work. <laughs> no, uh, it, it, it takes a lot of coordination. It takes um, vision. And this is the visual artist in me. There is a visual arts component to it. And every year we've tried to, to vary what we're doing so that it feels new. It feels fresh. It feels as though, you know, you're seeing this for the first time. And then it's just, you know, I've got literally three truckloads worth of marigolds in my backyard <laughs> leading up to the day that we actually construct it. Now that it's been a few years, I feel like there's plenty of people who are like, oh my God, what can I do to help? There's uh, Anne Theremeyer from Holyoke who uh, is running again for, for Holyoke City Council. So vote for Anne. Um <laughs> I don't know if we're technically allowed to say that, but okay. Jason Montgomery. Okay. Is, we are not J allowed Jason to say that. Mon Jason Montgomery is endorsing <laughs> Anne. Uh, Anne painted, hand painted, I think, twenty four skulls this year. It was a huge amount, and that effort from the community is such a beautiful thing. You can tell that the Chicano side of Jason is pretty active because in Day of the Dead, you also do a lot of this type of you, you create civic engagement. It is actually part part of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, that it's well, it's very much part of the the Chicano practice in nineteen. 1978, when the first um, Chicano Day of the Dead celebration happened in San Francisco, there were voter drives, there was high school registration, there was GED um, practice tutoring happening. It was very much around, like, how can we coordinate our community into civil action? And so I don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> And part of the answer seems to be plant marigolds and mums in late September. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and to continue answering your question, Khalees, the elements that are part of, uh, of the ofrenda, as Jason said, there's a lot of artistry in it. We even decided that the ofrenda of last year was an art installation, a collective art installation mm -hmm. that was a living piece that people kept adding more and more elements. Yeah. Part of those elements that are most of the time the same ones you will see include the marigolds, you will have, of course, pictures of, of the people who we are remembering and honoring. For the case of children, usually they put toys. And for the adults, some of their personal belongings. Because this is a family gathering. It's a homecoming. So you want to welcome your own with the things that they enjoy in life, the type of drinks they liked, the type of food they like. And there is a lot of food as well. It is actually prepared in such a way that every person, alive or not, they have their own sitting at the table with the food that they enjoyed in life. Mm -hmm. And no one is to touch that plate because they are here. It's amazing where you go to places like in Los Angeles. They have ofrendas all over. Mm -hmm. Last time I was there last year, it, uh, I counted 50 Ofrendas. And, and we're talking as large as this studio, yeah. <laughs> where community put all their effort to create something that they could honor the, their, their people. This is the first year that you're doing three ofrendas. Why and how expand it? Um, because I have ADD. That, yeah. Um, no, I, I think this year in particular, uh, one was the Wisteria Hearse and, and the partnership with the Wisteria Hearse was very much like, you know, and I, I don't mind saying it 
in front of you, Johan, but very much, I think, to honor the work that you had done before we all got coordinated together. I, I don't want to blow too much smoke, but like, Johan, you've been working in this community on these type of issues for years. I jokingly tell people you're everywhere I want to be, but it's true. And so making sure that we had one in the Wisteria Hearse because you had done them in the Wisteria Hearse prior was very important to me this year. The Laurel Park is because I live in that neighborhood now. (laughs) But no, after last year's Laurel Park, you know, with the children and the families and to see that a tradition form, it's, it's like, well, we're doing this forever now. And then East Hampton, again, is Will Bundy and the Eastworks space is such a key to cultural exchange in uh, East Hampton. And we wanted to make sure that, you know, Will and Eastworks had one that folks could come and take part in. Even if they don't add anything to the ofrenda, but just acknowledging it is there and respecting that everybody else is uh, remembering their death, it it becomes such a magic uh, experience to see. And we thought, after seeing the impact this has had with members of our community in, in Holyoke and people visiting from outside to see it, why not having more? Because in the end, it's also allowing that opportunity for everybody to join and have their own way to celebrate, remember, and honor their death Mexican style. (laughs) (laughs) I also love that it kind of like goes in the face of like oftentimes there being one and the greater community saying, oh, that's enough. Like, no, it's not enough. We should have more. No, there should be one in every neighborhood in Holyoke. I hope in the future there will be one in every neighborhood in Holyoke. Jason Montgomery and Johan Rashi Vega, who are part of the organizing body behind three ofrendas, two in Holyoke, one at Wisteria Hurst, one at Laurel Park, and one in Eastworks in East Hampton at 30 Arrow Gallery. Thank you so much. Thank you. The thing about November is that it is also Indigenous People's Month, and we didn't get a chance to talk with Jason Montgomery, but he is leading an Indigenous heritage celebration at Wisteria Hearst this weekend also. It happens on November 5th, features previous guests of the show, Rhonda Anderson and other folks from Okateu, and talks about the art of Indigenous populations and their relationship to our uh, nation and the things that we have done here. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be covering Indigenous Peoples Month uh, as that progresses, because tomorrow is November. Tomorrow is November, indeed. It's a crazy thing, but it is true. So you you can find out more information by going to wistariahearst.org. You don't dress up for Halloween. I don't. Why? Because this day is like a high and holy day for a lot of cultures, and I feel like that is something to be revered and doesn't need a costume, so I don't do it. Nice. I'm dressed up like a crayon. He is dressed up like a crayon, and now I have to post a picture because he said something. I feel like that was your plan all along. No, I just was, you know, <laughs> wanting to, I work in a non-visual this medium, is, so I want people to know that like, I went out of my way today. This is costume one of two for you. Yes, I will be Uncle Fester in an undisclosed location trick-or-treating with my family, also dressed as the Adams Family later Not tonight. that the crayon isn't bad, but like, I wish I could see that one. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll send you pictures. Awesome. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, it is November when we'll be thinking of harvest and of hunger and ways to address it here in the Commonwealth. Which is what the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts does daily. They've just moved to a new facility in Chicopee, so we'll go take a tour of their new building, find out how they've been able to grow and how they're getting ready for that 43-mile walk to Greenfield later in this month. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm getting ready. And we'll have our weekly chat with Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster and learn some new and fancy ways to say things that our bodies make us suffer through 
daily. Oh, also, Jason Montgomery, congratulations on the Pushcart nomination. Yeah, Indeed. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kali Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.